Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences, here today with Just J.H. How's it going, Just J.H.? Hey, what's up? Yeah, special episode. We don't do this that often. Today, we are chatting about UX. That's Y-O-U-X, which was our first annual event dedicated to you. Yes, UX, I think, is also. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I guess I'll hype you up since your team put it on, but... Um, Everything I've seen about the event has been incredibly positive. Lots of cool shout outs on LinkedIn and Twitter and other social media. So it seems like it was one of those things that um, was really impactful for folks and people were able to take a lot of actionable stuff away from it, which is uh, great to see. So nice job. Thanks. Yeah. 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 It was fun. Uh, we wanted to, we knew what we wanted to do our first big event this year. And uh, we've been a remote company from the start. And so, Doing remote felt sort of on brand, but also practical and a way to kind of dabble dabble into this big event thing. And um, yeah, we're really pleased with the response, the number of people who signed up and joined in, and uh, especially the engagement throughout the day was pretty amazing. We did this in a super like MVP V1 way with, we ran everything through Zoom. We didn't have our event manager here yet. So it was just like all hands on deck. Uh, and there's something, there's something kind of winning about that, I think, where uh, the lo-fi path kind of wins sometimes. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And obviously a lot of credit to the guests and the speakers who were there throughout the day. And so today, I think right with the episode we want to do is a little bit of like a supercut or highlight reel of some of those sessions, since it's a lot of content to process. And we thought it might be helpful for people to get a sense of what all the different sessions were about and, and what people touched on. And then if people are interested, they can go, you know, dig in and, and watch the whole talk. Yeah, for sure. So you can go to... Uh, maybe we'll share this clip later, but userinterviews.com slash UX, Y-O-U-X, uh, should get you where you want to go. You can also check out our blog for lots of video clips there. Um, but basically what we had throughout the day was we had some breakout sessions and then we had two panels and two keynotes. So we're going to share some clips from all of that, but also gives us an opportunity to just kind of dabble into some topics that we love to chat about here on Awkward Silences. Um, so where should we start, start JH? Uh, let's start with the interviewing with confidence uh, talk. I think that lines up well with, you know, what we do and some past guest stuff. So that'd be a fun one to riff on. Let's do it. The first is what I call awkward pauses. So you're having a conversation back and forth and you don't know what to ask next or the person you're interviewing takes a while to answer and suddenly we get nervous. Uh-oh, is the conversation not going well? Did I ask the wrong question? Did I ask a silly question? Don't be afraid of awkward pauses. Um, sometimes pauses are a good thing. People need time to think and carefully calibrate their answers. Let the silence fill the, 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 uh, the interview. Uh, and it's okay for, um, for the, your person you're interviewing not to respond right away. And don't feel like you need to jump in and follow up your question with another question right away or to clarify your question. Uh, let the, the pause, the silence hang for a few seconds uh, and then keep going. So leverage pauses, don't be afraid of them and certainly don't let them affect your confidence. Use the right setup. I think this one is really important, especially in a world where we are conducting more of our research through mediums like this, like Zoom or Microsoft Teams or, or Slack Connect. Um, having the right uh, technology to help us through our interviewing process is really important. So one example is around note-taking. Um, 
sometimes you get so wrapped up in the interview that it's hard to jot down all the notes and all the insights you're getting from the interview. Uh, technology now allows us not to have to write down anything. We can use recorders uh, and transcribers. Uh, sites like Otter allow us to do real-time transcription where we can focus on the conversation and really go back and forth with the people we're interviewing and let the recording record, let the transcription transcribe, and then we'll be able to go back afterwards and have the, the notes we need to understand what, what we covered in the conversation um, and what the learnings were. Um, Make sure that you have the right um, setup in terms of sound, in terms of visual. You need multiple screens so that you can have one screen for the video, one screen for screen sharing or application sharing. So that right setup really um, will give you the confidence to know that you're doing the interview in the right way uh, and will yield the best results. My last piece of advice is around uh, what I call banking small wins. Confidence is not an all or nothing um, feeling. It is something that is, uh, has level of gradation. And it's something that has, I think, momentum and builds on itself. And so I find that when I need to build confidence and I don't wanna go from zero to 100, I wanna go from zero to 10, 10 to 30, 30 to 60 and 60 to 100. And I do that by um, getting small wins, getting from that zero to 10, and then from that 10 to 30. Uh, and small wins can come in lots of different ways. Maybe it's running um, internal interviews before you run external interviews. Maybe it's interviewing someone who has a more junior role before interviewing that CEO. Um, maybe it's just building confidence internally with, with things on, on your own um, skills and habits. Uh, you know, I have a good friend who just quit smoking last year. And he decided that he couldn't go cold turkey. So he went from two packs a day to a pack and a half a day to just over a pack a day. And he worked himself down. And each of those was a win, right? Going from that two pack a day to a pack and a half a day was a, a small win all the way to the six months later where he was fully, um, he fully uh, got off the, the smoking habit. Um, he, it was not just that big win, it was really the series of small wins. And so by banking small wins, you build confidence, you build momentum that gets you up to a point where you have the confidence to tackle anything you wanna do, um, especially interviews. So those are my five recommendations. Um, confidence comes from these things, being authentic, preparing, um, Staying in your lane, being the trusted advisor, not trying to be the hero, having the right setup and processes during your interviews, and practice, practice, practice. The last thing I want to talk about are really three things that I find that come up during interviews, especially when they're done online, that can really affect um, uh, sort of affect the conversation and really hurt your confidence mid-interview. And we want to be careful of them. Starting first-time role as a UX researcher at an agency with a high-paying client, feeling strong imposter syndrome as I'll be the sole UX researcher on a cross-functional team. Best steps to combat this. So I think the first thing to remember is that your company has, um, has confidence in you, right? They have hired you because they know that you can do the job they are comfortable putting you in front of this high paying client because they believe that you are the right person for this, uh, for this client engagement. And so build on that confidence that they have in you to build confidence in yourself that you not only belong there, but you're gonna kick butt doing the job. 
So yeah, yeah to, to kick us off. Uh, so we had Danny Esner is the VP of marketing at Chameleon. Um, and the idea of this talk was, you know, how do you interview with confidence? Maybe even when you weren't feeling super confident, um, which, uh, was really about interviewing participants for, you know, a user interview kind of setting, but also in this market translated nicely to folks interviewing for jobs and all sorts of kind of related, uh, scenarios. And, uh, he talked about one of our favorite topics, which was awkward silences. Yeah. Uh, I was glad to see that one on the list. Um, I guess not surprised to see it there, but um, always a good reminder, maybe less helpful in a job interview, but certainly in a, in a research <laughs> <Yes>. interview. Um, <laughs> silence is your friend. And so, you know, giving people space to, to reply and expand on their thoughts is just, um, you know, seems silly on this podcast, but is, is really a foundational thing in, in doing good interviews. So I uh, love that shout out. I also um, liked the emphasis that they put on around just like making sure that you have your setup dialed in and taking advantage of what technology enables. So you know, if you're doing the session solo and you don't have a note taker, it can be really hard to be present and be a good listener and facilitator while trying to take notes, arguably maybe impossible. And so, you know, making sure that you have a good routine for transcripts or recordings or making timestamps and things like that. So, uh, you know, you can go back and take away all the lessons and learnings after the fact, but you can be present for the session, which I thought was a really nice call out. Yeah, for sure. Um, and someone had asked about, you know, kind of, how do you fake it till you make it? You know, how do you exude confidence when you're not feeling it? Which I think is something everyone can relate to at some point in their lives. Um, and so, you know, one of the tips there is really just to uh, believe in other people's confidence in you, which I think can really be great fuel if you're not believing the gospel yourself just yet or in any given scenario. Yeah, I actually remember um, helping somebody transition into product management a number of years ago, and they had a little bit of imposter syndrome going on and, and having a conversation with them and, and said something very similar of like, hey, I wouldn't have approved this transition and, and put you on the team if I didn't think you could do this. So like, you know, I believe in you full stop, like, um, and, and, you know, that stuff is really helpful. So like that framing as well. Awesome. So uh, play some clips here. Let's listen to some clips. We'll be right back. There is oftentimes an equal power dynamic. This is your partner. This is like your accountability partner. Um, and with a mentor, um, you're oftentimes seeking someone who has, uh, could be more experience, could have be specific experiences, it could be uh, more time spent in a, in a career, They're, they have something that you want to gain. Um, when it comes to problem solving, I think the primary role of a coach is to support someone in being able to solve their own problems, and not necessarily providing advice or engaging in problem solving. And with mentorship, there may be more of a focus on a mentee who is trying to learn how to do something, learn how to solve a particular problem. And that mentor may be providing uh, lessons from their own, their own lives and their own careers, maybe providing specific advice or specific direction on how to, on how to solve that problem. Mentorship, as I think Paul had mentioned a little earlier, is really Sometimes there are power dynamics, experience differences, or knowledge differences that I shared earlier. And the mentee should be in control of their growth and the things that they want to learn and lean into. It is different than that of maybe a coach like was shared earlier that may provide you specific um, guidance and structure to get you from point A to point B. And so with that being said, because it's about the mentee's growth, the sort of focus has shifted to making sure that they're in the limelight for the sessions. The mentor is there to guide and support where they need guidance and support. 
And so I would recommend as a mentee, you always have an agenda for your mentor at every meeting that you have and try not to have a laundry checklist of things that you're looking to accomplish because what you'll end up getting, unfortunately, is more shallow feedback to go through your checklist, but maybe not the meaningful, deep feedback that you need in order to make progress. And so I would ask for you to focus on no more than three things and really make sure that those are the, the, the focal points of the session. But a progression is really looking back on where you were and feeling like you've accomplished something, that you've learned something new and that you're growing as an individual or as a professional. And so for me, I think that um, one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was when I decided to come into research from being in design for over six years. And one of my good friends, Autumn Schultz, she happens to be here, she uh, raised her hand and said, careers are not linear, period. Yeah. And so then we uh, went into, we had a panel, we had two panels, both of them were, were excellent. I know sometimes panels can be a little boring, but these were, these were lit panels. All right. So the first one was, will you be my mentor? Uh, kind of getting into what's become a pretty hot topic recently, I've found, which is a sort of, what's a coach? What's a mentor? What's a shrink? Like, who do you need in your kind of uh, team in your corner to help you level up in your career, maybe outside of, you know, folks you work with uh, sometimes directly. So uh, we got into that. We had Paul Derby from ServiceNow, Devin Harold from Capital One, uh, Dr. Erica Spear from Answer Lab and Varun Marugasan from Apple and Banana, uh, all jumping into that panel. Yeah, I loved how they just really concisely were able to kind of cover the difference between coaching and mentoring, because I think that's something people get tripped up on. But just kind of, you know, in a coaching relationship, it's kind of an equal power dynamic. You know, they're there to help you um, and really trying to help you figure out how to solve the problem yourself, right? And kind of give you that external uh, acknowledgement or, or framework or things like that. Whereas a mentor is somebody who is, you know, a bit ahead of you on experience or in their career and has maybe gone through some of the types of things that you're navigating now um, and therefore can be a little bit more specific with their recommendations or advice or even help you like kind of co-problem solve something. So it's gonna be a little bit more directive at times. And um, I thought that was a really helpful overview. Yeah. And, I, and also some really just good tactical tips on how to work with folks. Like, for example, you know, when you're working with a mentor or a coach uh, kind of showing up with a small list of things you want to get into, right? Almost like if you're doing uh, like an interview, having some research questions or learning objectives, like what am I trying to discover uh, about myself or about this problem in this session? So you can kind of give it some direction and not wander aimlessly. So that's another good tip. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big fan of coming in with a specific agenda and, and making sure that you're going deep where they can be, you know, most helpful with their expertise versus just kind of doing a scatter shot you know, random check-in. I uh, thought that was great. And then I really liked the piece too about um, just the fact that, you know, your progress and your career path is not going to be linear. Mm. And there's a trap that you fall into believing that that's going to be how it goes. But it's more about kind of taking a moment to look back on where you were some time period ago and, and realizing how much you've grown since then. There was a really good talk when I was at the uh, UX Y'all conference in um, Raleigh in North Carolina last year, where one of the keynotes was about this. And the person had drawn all these different graphs of the types yeah. of different careers you can have. And all of them were weird shapes. There was not one that was just a line that went, you know, straight up to the right. And so uh, I think that's a really important thing to remember as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Let's hear, uh, hear some clips. We're not computers, right? We're not CPUs. We don't have the same output 
every single day. So, so some days you're going to be more productive than others, right? And like just, you know, kicking yourself like, I didn't do enough today. I didn't do enough today. <laughs> I didn't do X, Y. I think that can be, you know, really debilitating. You know, give your, like, kind of like Nikki said, be kind to yourself, give, giving yourself some grace. I get very stressed about work. And whenever I get stressed and concerned and anxious about work, I will let, I will not be nearly as nice as I normally am. <laughs> to the people around me. My poor husband and I both work from home, so he knows this very well. Um, but something that something that I would recommend when it comes to feeling like maybe imposter syndrome is like triggering you in a way that's um, kind of making you feel uh, like kind of spilling over into your into your more personal life or outside of outside of work um is sitting down and kind of trying to identify why that's happening i just end up lashing out at my partner even though like you know i could just be like hey i need some time to myself and just process everything and usually once like i've cooled down then like i can have more of a conversation with people so definitely it's okay when you like in certain situations, like if I feel triggered, I just like take a few deep breaths and just try to like maybe give myself time to disconnect from a situation a little bit before coming back and then maybe like talking a little more with the other person. Only 3% of designers are black or African-American. So I've constantly worked in all white spaces, majority white spaces for, for, for more than 20 years. And there's always that kind of feeling of like, you know, when we're talking about advocating for the for the user or, or something like that, it's just like, sometimes you can tell when products, like there was not a black person in the room when, that, when someone was making a decision. You know, the, the thing about wearables, you know, about how the light sensor doesn't penetrate melanated skin and things that's not being tested on people, black and brown people, things like that. Right. And then we went into our second of two panels, also a great one, imposter syndrome. I was uh, sitting with my husband the other night who's reading The New Yorker, as you do, um, and was like, imposter syndrome is about, you know, the woman who, the psychiatrist who sort of had coined this term. And he says, have, have you heard about this? I'm like, oh, yes. Yes, I've heard about this. This is a very hot topic um, in sort of LinkedIn work circles in general. And uh, super, super relevant. Uh, folks had a lot to say and jump in on here. And um, as much as it's been a hot topic we've talked about, I think still something people are struggling with and having lots of uh, questions and thoughts about. So this one was really good. We had Tiffany Eaton from Google, Nikki Anderson Sr. from User Research Academy, and Frederick Royster uh, moderating uh, as well. So that was a great one. Yeah, I liked um, somebody had a, a comment in there about, you know, how we're not, you know, we're not computers, we're humans. And so we have emotions and we're not always, you know, perfectly rational. And your emotions around a negative thing can really overshadow lots of other positive things just because of how you perceive that and finding ways to kind of recenter yourself or, or keep track of that perspective um, so that, you know, you can go back and look at all of the other wins and positive experience and, you know, good moments you've had and kind of balance the ledger on how you're thinking about it and not letting that one maybe negative blip that occurred somewhere along the line kind of shadow over everything. So I think that's really good. Um, I know it's, you know, kind of coming off review season. One thing I've heard people recommend is, you know, kind of keeping like a brag file for yourself of, hey, I achieved this thing or I did this or somebody shared this nice comment with me or, you know, having those things available so you can kind of go back for your own self-review. But also I think in moments like this, you know, have a kind of objective reference of being like, oh, actually, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm not going to let that one little thing uh, rattle me too much. Yeah, for sure. 
there was also a, a tip of, about sort of thinking about what triggers it or where is it coming from? Because uh, I, I think, again, it's a spectrum and everyone can sort of suffer this sometimes. That tends to show up a lot in women and minorities in particular for probably obvious reasons. Um, but a lot of that has to do with comparing yourself, right? And back to review season, right? Like certain situations can really put you in a comparative, competitive kind of mindset. But um, ultimately, uh, when it comes to user research, right, it's really trying to uncover useful information to help the business move forward. So things like an abundance mindset can be really helpful there and limiting that um, imposter syndrome, those feelings. Yeah, I like that uh, prompt to do that reflection and try to figure out like the actual source of, of what's maybe bothering you versus just kind of taking it on the surface level, um, which makes sense. And then I thought there was also some really important stuff in there about not letting it spill over and affect, you know, the rest of your life. People kind of called out that sometimes when you're having some negative thoughts or dealing with some imposter syndrome, you know, that can cause stress and you can be maybe a little bit less patient or nice than you otherwise would be. And that can start to affect personal relationships. So just kind of identifying those triggers, um, having some methods to cool down or give yourself some space to kind of disconnect and, and then come back to that from, um, you know, a place where you're a little bit more grounded, I thought also really good advice. So you don't, again, let something that is happening to you and you're experiencing become larger than it needs to be and, you know, create um, some other uh, ill effect. Right. Which is sort of antithetical to the growth mindset, right? You are, you are not your behaviors. You are over time. All of your behaviors added up, but we all... Um, fill lots of roles in our lives. Um, so, yeah. All right, let's hear some clips. Yeah, do it. Research and the research process, a lot of that is all about asking questions, right? Um, viewing each of those through a different lens. It's also about critically assessing new information um, as it becomes available to us. And then doing so while trying to control for sources of error and controlling for bias. While stress interferes with that process, right? It interferes with the brain's ability to do things like process new information, to plan ahead, to problem solve. The stress brain, you know, resorts to a much more narrowed way of thinking, which is a much more biased and an error-prone way of thinking. It's less capable of navigating ambiguity. Um, it's much more uh, reactive to feedback, um, less flexible. So in a way, you know, the stress brain not only hinders us from being able to do what we need to, to do for the work that we do, but it, it also prevents us to, from doing the things that we're actually best at doing, right? And importantly, you can always flip the script. So there's a lot of power in language, which I think many of us know, but the language we use to describe our experiences is powerful. And we should be careful of that narrative and of the, the labels we use um, particularly to describe ourselves, but even to describe the experiences um, that we're, we're observing. Our identities, right, our experiences, they have a way of crystallizing um, around the terms we give them. For example, if I say I am sad or I am stressed, right, well, then my identity becomes fused with that expression. I, I become the sadness. I become the stress. Instead, if I say you know, I am experiencing a moment of stress or I am experiencing a moment that lacks happiness. It creates a little bit more space between myself um, and, and say the emotion. And then it makes it easier for me to be a person that's experiencing sadness passing through me um, and then passing through time. It's much more transient. 
attending to, you know, how we even think about our the narratives that are going through our minds um, or the labels that we use to define ourselves. So when I think about the context of, say, you know, layoffs, the first thing that comes to mind is even like identities. So, you know, I was mindful when talking about research. Um, you know, when I think about research or researchers, I'm actually thinking about that in the broader sense, not just in the sense of like professions. Um, so, you know, we're all researchers in a sense, regardless of whether we are professionally researchers tied to a particular uh, company within a particular role, right? Um, as humans, we naturally are information gatherers, information seekers. Um, so by that definition, you know, we are all researchers. And I think it's important when starting to cultivate a much more mindful approach where one sort of expands beyond um, their role, it allows them to have sort of a bit of that, that separation where they're not um, defined by a particular role, defined by a particular situation. It allows them a little bit more space um, where uh, ideally events won't be as, as impactful um, for them. So all right, we've got two more for you. We've got uh, our first keynote of the day was on wellness and UX uh, from Dr. Christelle Newman. And this was a really great uh, sort of minimalist keynote where each section was kind of a statement that she asked us to reflect on uh, in a very soothing way. I found it you know, to be a very soothing uh, keynote. Um, so some of them I thought were really interesting. One was about um, stress as being a big bias generator, which was a little bit of an aha for me when um, you kind of got your brain pumping full of cortisol. Like, do you are you really having uh, neutral objective judgment? And you know, when you put it that way, of course you aren't. Um, but I don't think we always think of stress as being a bias generator. But when you really pause to think about it, uh, certainly probably is one in a lot of our lives at work a lot of the time. Yeah, I think uh, they might have described it as kind of like a narrowing, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like almost like mm -hmm. some flight or flight type stuff, yep. uh, fight or flight. I yep. don't know if I said that right, mm -hmm. but um, you know, you're not going to be doing your best problem solving or creative work when you're in that kind of state. And so, being able to identify it and, and find ways to get yourself out of that is, is really important. I think for knowledge work in particular. Yeah, for sure. And um, I thought there was a recommendation in there as well around just being really thoughtful and intentional with the language you use and just how powerful you know, the way you describe things is both in terms of your identity and, and how you think of experiences. Um, I think the example was, you know, something around if you say, you know, I'm sad, it feels like it's a thing core to you versus just like I'm experiencing some sadness or, you know, mm -hmm. those types of examples are, are really powerful. I think um, that book Atomic Habits yep. by uh, James Clear um, gets into some of that. I know like people who are trying to quit smoking, I think is his example of saying like, oh, I'm trying to quit is very different than saying like, I don't smoke. You know what I mean? It's just like, because you're owning the identity in that other one. And um, so just, I, I really like the ideas of being really thoughtful with your language and, and self-talk. Yeah. Wait, which one's better? I don't smoke or I'm trying to quit? I think it's saying, I think saying I'm not a smoker is better okay. than saying right. I'm trying to quit. Because I'm trying to quit is like, you haven't identity. done it yet versus just my identity yeah. is like, I'm not a yeah. smoker, right? Like I've yeah. changed who I, how I view that myself. Yeah. Right. yeah. Cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, Anything else jump out to you in this one? There was, uh, let's see, one was about, someone asked about um, how to apply some sort of mindfulness uh, practices if you're going through a layoff, which unfortunately we know lots of lots of people are these days. Um, so kind of related to what you were saying with just like, um, you are not your job. <laughs> your job is something you do and it might even be a big part of your identity, but um, not to 
A, uh, let it be your entire identity when that's kind of taken away from you. And like B, um, you can remain a researcher even when you aren't a researcher, right? And, you know, not uh, letting those skills and interests atrophy even as your nine to five changes. So again, really focusing, being being mindful about where you focus your mind and focus your energy, Mm -hmm. letting that. Yeah, yeah. I love there's a saying, I think, uh, pay attention to what you pay attention to, whatever. It's a little bit of that as well. Um, Yeah, this one, I think it just had a lot of nuance. So uh, we'll obviously play some clips here, but um, you should listen, you know, you should go watch all the talks. But I think this one in particular kind of benefits from from seeing it in a holistic way. Now, I have a couple of caveats here. This is just my opinion, but I think there are types of research you can democratize and other types that maybe it's a little harder to do. And I think generative research is where you really see the skill sets of a researcher um, come, come into play. And that's the type of research that I don't think is great for anyone necessarily to do. And I'm absolutely open to debate on this point, but I think when we talk about the differences between generative and evaluative research. I think evaluative is actually the better candidate for this. Over at Miro, they said, um, this was Eduardo who led the effort to democratize research at Miro. He said, conversations with users are already happening regardless of our investment to empower others. And we as expert researchers can facilitate and guide that process. And that was my experience too, that When I was a design lead or UX lead on the design side of things for Ontario.ca, people were already doing design. And so if I wasn't facilitating and guiding that process, it was happening regardless, especially in a large organization, depending on the hierarchy and the controls and checks you have in place, it actually might not even be in your control. People might just be doing it anyway. So you have to really be aware of where your organization is at and if you're just in denial about things that are already happening or not aware of them. Because oftentimes if you have a small research team, they might only be hitting one stage of product development and not um, the entire span of everything. Because when you have limited resources, where do you put the attention? Do you do it early? Do you do generative research to help inform product development? Do you do... um, prototype reviews to help inform design? Do you do evaluative testing once people start building things? Do you do QA once the entire product is ready to launch? Um, do you do it after the fact when things are live to monitor and, and you know, A-B testing and all of those good things to continuously improve your product? If you only have a small team of researchers, how are they going to do all of that, right? That's That to me is the ultimate challenge where decentralization or democratization can help distribute research along the entire product life cycle, position the researchers as experts and coaches, and they're there to guide others. There are parts of the research cycle that are more impactful and require specialized attention. And you put the research focus on that and also being coaches and trainers for everybody else. Uh, and then we had uh, a second keynote. Um, this one was on research for all, which is sort of a double entente, research for all in the sense of uh, democratization, but also um, in the sense of accessibility. Uh, so this was with Kate Kal- Kalsevich from uh, Fable. And uh, Fable, if you don't know, is uh, uh, an accessibility platform, good friends of user interviews, and they do really great and important work. Uh, what jumped out to you in this one, Jage? 
I think I really liked the uh, the hot take that if you're going to have non-researchers doing research, it's probably better to focus them on evaluative methods. Um, they're a little bit closer to some of their maybe specific design problems that a designer or product manager are working through. And, you know, maybe a little bit more structured in the technique or the, or the methodology in terms of how you're going to go do that usability prompt or something like that. Um, and then the take that generative research is where is an approach that really benefits from the user researcher's skill and, and craft and knowing how to do that really well to probe and take that conversation where it needs to go. So um, I actually don't think I've heard that many times before, but once I heard it, I sort of agreed with it pretty quickly as I think that there is something there that tracks to me. Um, so I, uh, I don't know, I, I like a good hot take and I thought that one was interesting. Yeah, for sure. And she also mentioned something we've heard a lot, but um, basically that for anyone out there who's still trying to keep democratization from happening, that sort of a, a, a lost cause, a, a losing battle where it's going to happen, it's happening, and, you know, it's really about how you approach it. And I think because that's sort of where the dialogue seems to have shifted, there's now a lot of really useful conversation on what do you do about it. And I think there's some really healthy debates and uh, tests happening live in the market on how do you do this well. Um, and obviously that's going to look different for different kinds of organizations, but you know, what some folks seem to kind of share in terms of how to do this well would be, A, it's happening, you got to let it happen. B, you've got to put guardrails around the research. So, you know, maybe in your organization that's setting people up with templates and for evaluative research or recruiting criteria, making sure they're being compliant and incentivizing the right way and things like that. Um, and then setting up those those systems to kind of run with um, less less input from you day to day. Yeah, I thought there's a lot of good stuff in here about just kind of working with the system and, and setting it up to be optimal given the realities of whatever's happening in the organization versus kind of maybe fighting those currents. Yeah. Um, going to be a little over my depth here, but I know in like martial arts, uh, I think the idea behind like jujitsu is that you kind of use the movements of your opponent to your advantage. And I think this is a little bit of that, right? Of like, if you if you already have people in your organization who, who are talking to users pretty often, find ways to influence that in a positive way and, and harness that energy and momentum to get better outputs than trying to shut it down and centrally control it and stuff. And I think um, just a good mindset. It's not going to work in every case, but um, you know, thinking about where you can coach and add enablement and guides and then free yourself up in the research team to do the more impactful strategic work that you know, you're really best positioned to do as a result, um, I think it's just a, it's a nice reframing. Probably not going to work in every case or always lead to the best outcome, but I think um, you can find a lot of opportunity that way and uh, it's a good reminder. Research jujitsu, I like that. I think that is also yeah, my very post. limited understanding of jujitsu. So, I yeah, I don't really know it. So, if anyone uh, yeah, is listening to this, uh, please grab that one. Chat. What does Chat GBT say? Certainly, it knows. Um, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this was fun. Um, we had a blast throwing this event. Thanks so much to all of our presenters and attendees and everyone at User Interviews who made it happen. Um, seemed to be a lot of interest in doing it again. So, I think we'll probably do that. Yeah, nice work to you and your team. And uh, I assume we'll probably end up getting a few of these folks on the podcast as guests. For sure. Since there's a lot it. of stuff to dig into here. Yeah. yeah. All right. Toodaloo.